Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We're currently working on a bonus episode about Pixar's Onward, and we recorded a special movie game where I could not name a single film starring Michael Caine. Uh, to subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. With American movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we'll be looking at two films about women in the workplace and all the exciting opportunities that await them. With just a cup of ambition and a tablespoon of moxie, you have a surefire recipe for success. What? Scott, did you even watch the movies we're talking about this week? Well, I skimmed them. How do you skim a movie? Were you fast forwarding? No, no I, I meant I skimmed the IMDb plot summary. Those are like three sentences long. Well, I think I got the gist of it. Working Girl is about a secretary who gets her boss's job, and the assistant is about a recent college graduate who gets her start in the movie business. I mean, I guess that's technically true, but there's really a lot more going on in these movies. <sighs> Fine. I tell you what, it's eight o'clock now. Why don't we stop the recording? I'll watch the two films and then we'll reconvene at midnight and uh, do it all again. What do you say? God, I mean, I guess. <laughs> wow, guys, I'm really sorry. I, I just watched a Working Girl and The Assistant back to back, and it turns out there are a few broken rungs on the old corporate ladder. And if you're an ambitious woman starting at the bottom, you either have to scheme your way to the top or quietly tolerate your boss's monstrous abuses. Maybe I should let someone who did their homework talk about this week's pairing. Genevieve? Combining a corporate Cinderella story with sharp social commentary, Mike Nichols's Working Girl works as a comedy, a romance, and an old-fashioned star vehicle for Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. It's also a frank assessment of the obstacles facing women in a male-dominated executive class, whether they're as high up as Weaver's mergers and acquisitions boss, or as low down as Griffith's assistant, who's bounced from job to job without ever leaving the secretarial pool. The impossibility of Griffith's advancement triggers a grand deception to pose as an executive, but the options for Julia Garner in Kitty Green's new film The Assistant are much more limited. Garner stars as a recent college graduate who gets a job working under a Harvey Weinstein-like movie executive, but when she catches wind of his sexually abusive behavior, she finds her options for reporting it are extremely limited, and likely self-destructive. These are two very different movies from two very different eras, but certain power dynamics haven't changed much in the 32 years that separate them. You can catch up on The Assistant on the various rental services before next week's episode. We'll get into Working Girl after the break. Century Fox presents Harrison Ford. Last night was special. It wasn't so special. I had to carry up three flights of stairs. Sigourney Weaver. This woman is my secretary. She's not. Oh no? Ask her. Melanie Griffith. How about you? I'm flat broke. I'm crazy about a man that I will probably never see again. Well, besides that. <laughs> 
in a new film directed by Mike Nichols. I'm telling you, she's your man. Working Girl. You know, maybe I just don't like you. Me? Nah. <laughs> Before getting cast as Tess McGill in Working Girl, Melanie Griffith's most notable roles were as a pornographic actress in Brian De Palma's body double, a sleazier-than-usual riff on Weir Window, and as the Something Wild in Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. And even as far back as her casting as a 17-year-old in Arthur Penn's excellent neo-noir night moves, Griffith has established a reputation as an object of desire, alternately sexually compliant or sexually aggressive, but always someone who is going to take the male lead on a ride. And with that breathy, halting voice of hers, she seemed to count on being underestimated. When Tess says, I have a head for business and a bod for sin in Working Girl, the bod for sin part was well understood. It was always going to be the head for business part that required some persuasion, both on the part of executives in the world of investment banking and on an audience who may be slower to respect what Griffith had to offer. Her presence in Working Girl recalls Judy Holliday's Oscar-winning turn in Born Yesterday as a brassy hayseed with a funny voice who's given a quick education to help her socialize with the D.C. elite, but who also turns out to be smarter and savvier than anyone assumed. The connection to a film like Born Yesterday seems appropriate to Working Girl 2 because director Mike Nichols is attempting a comedy that looks backwards and forwards at the same time. It's an old-fashioned Cinderella story that's set in a corporate environment that feels very much like the cutthroat one Gordon Gecko lorded over a year before in Wall Street. And it's also a showcase for glamorous studio players like Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. It's a romantic comedy, it's a conversation piece, and it was crafted for a mainstream audience, which responded by making it one of the biggest hits of 1988. The early scenes in Working Girl established Tess as a working-class go-getter from Staten Island who isn't getting anywhere in the business world, despite a scrappy night school education and a good instinct for business opportunities. She consistently gets turned away in favor of Ivy League prospects, and she's belittled and humiliated by the men who control her fate on Wall Street. But Tess sees the potential to break through when she gets a job as a secretary for Catherine Parker, played by Sigourney Weaver, her first female boss and the first boss who seems interested in hearing her ideas. One of those ideas is for a client called Trask Industries, a company Tess thinks would benefit from dropping its TV aspirations and getting a foothold in local radio markets. She offers this idea to Catherine and is gratified when it gets some serious consideration, even though she's told that Trask isn't going for it. Catherine asks her to look after her lavish place while she's off on a ski trip, and that trip is extended by several weeks when Catherine falls and breaks her leg. While sorting through her boss's things, Tess makes a terrible discovery. Catherine not only liked the idea of a Trask radio deal, she's been communicating in secret with investment broker Jack Trainer, played by Harrison Ford, about setting up a deal while making sure that Tess doesn't know about it. As the disrespect continues at home, where her boyfriend Mick, played by Alec Baldwin, is cheating on her, Tess resolves to take command of her own destiny. She poses as an executive, arranges a business meeting with Jack, and works on getting the Trask deal done. In the meantime, she and Jack develop a closeness that leads to a real romantic relationship, which becomes especially dicey when it's revealed that Jack is the man Catherine expects to marry. Catherine's return from vacation sets up a combustible situation, but what's interesting about Working Girl is that Tess really wants to lay claim on this idea. Though the movie gods arrange a happy ending for her, she can't possibly expect to take over Catherine's office or salary or lifestyle for long. Wearing a $6,000 dress to a business party isn't a fantasy so much as the price of admission. What she really wants is the affirmation that she's a good businesswoman, whose working-class background isn't a limitation, but a source of original ideas. She's confident in herself. And what's the worst that could happen? 
When you start at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. No, no names, no business cards, no you must know so-and-so. What is this? No resumes. Let's just meet like human beings for once. Well, it's nice to meet you, whatever your name is, but I really do have to go. Please, please, one drink. Okay, one drink, but I'm buying. Okay, but it's an open bar. Right, I knew that. I meant that if it wasn't, I would be buying. Yeah, uh, tequila gold. Tequila. Yeah, I promised myself that when we met, we'd drink tequila. No Chardonnay, no frog water. Real drinks. <laughs> okay, uh, well, standard question. Uh, what is your history with Working Girl? Did you see it in 1988 as I did? <laughs> and how does it hold up in 2020? Uh, Genevieve, you see it when you, in 88? <laughs> yeah, I was going to what are you going to stop asking me if I've seen movies in the 80s in the theater, Scott? <laughs> It seems like a good one for you. <laughs> in keeping with tradition, I will tell you how old I was when this movie came out. I was five, so okay. not not quite appropriate material yet. But I did watch this movie a lot when I was younger. This was a kind of in the regular rotation in our home. It was uh, a favorite of my mom's and I guess became a favorite of mine by extension. Um, it was just like, it's a movie like Big, which I've talked about being that kind of movie uh, for me and uh, American President, like just sort of part of the fabric of my adolescence and childhood. So I have a, a pretty strong emotional connection to this movie while recognizing that it is, you know, not the sharpest feminist statement in either 1988 or 2020, but, you know, as a sort of twist on a Cinderella story and just as a sort of really well-plotted movie with some really great performances and amazing hair and costuming. Uh, you know, I, I still have a lot of affection for this movie, and I had no problem sitting down to, to rewatch it again. But I am curious and maybe a little hesitant uh, to discuss it in the context of, like I said, 2020 and, and The Assistant, which is a very different kind of movie. But yeah, I'm pro-working girl. I've never not been pro-working girl. Uh, but what, what about you guys? Oh, I saw it. I don't think I saw it in '89 on a VHS tape uh, <laughs> when I kind of rented everything that came out, and uh, I enjoyed it then. I enjoyed it now. Now I think it's just sort of a really well done comedy, and you know, I kind of made me yearn for the moment as we as we do too often on the show. But when, when this was could be a major release and not something like a scaled down version of this would show up on Netflix and mm. people would talk about it for a couple of days, you know, I'd forgotten how good Melanie Griffith was, which is probably. My mistake because I, you know, she's so good in something wild and she's so good in several films around this period. Uh, you know, I heard her later kind of, uh, you know, difficulties finding something to match this. I shouldn't overshadow how, uh, how terrific she is here. Tasha, what about you? I had never seen this movie. Oh, <laughs> for whatever reason, I thought I had. Maybe it's just uh, it was such a staple of video stores. It was such a staple of, uh, you know, the best of the 80s roundups. I feel like. Through some sort of cultural osmosis, I internalized some of the elements of it. But as soon as I started watching it, I, I thought, oh, I haven't ever actually seen this movie. I kind of feel like I enjoyed it more encountering it for the first time in 2020 than I would have enjoyed encountering it in 88, when it probably would have felt a little too much like other films of the times. I mean, it's got kind of elements of trading places. It's got elements of nine to five. It's got just a certain uh, amount of kind of like the cheesy 80s quality to it. And I think watching it at the time, uh, I would have sort of dismissed it as 
a fairy tale kind of combined with a, a kind of like wish fulfillment that would have made me kind of uncomfortable at the time. But looking at it in 2020, I can see how many elements it also borrowed from like workplace comedy dramas, uh, screwball type movies of the 1940s, and how much it feels like a Mike Nichols movie on top of all of that. Mm -hmm. Like, there are all of these different elements colliding in it from different eras and different methods of storytelling in ways that I just find really interesting. And then, of course, everybody in it is famous, uh, and famous <laughs> usually with very different looks. So seeing Harrison Ford unknowingly taking off his shirt for an enthusiastic audience of women just plays so differently <laughs> now, you know, that he's uh, kind of an, an older, bitterer crank of a man who's continually doing strange things with aeroplanes. <laughs> and everybody's everybody's hair is just so amazingly laughable uh in just like a really entertaining way but at the same time it still feels relevant the idea of somebody trying to uh, buck the system and get ahead in business as a woman in an industry that's trying to shut her out still feels really really relevant so not only did i thoroughly enjoy this movie i i really do think that i enjoy it more now than i would have enjoyed it then yeah i watched this with my wife who had never seen it before and and uh who uh she goes off and does the business stuff and is a high-powered executive <laughs> while, while i stay home and cook meals and write about movies um and and uh, she said it's still pretty relevant it's, it's not the world hasn't changed so much since the, the world of this film you know it does play uh, a lot differently now than i imagine it did in 1988 that scene with Kevin Spacey. Uh, oh, well, I mean, yeah. he's, he's very convincing as a, as a, as a sex creep. Right, know, yeah. Who, who yeah. The film saw saw something coming there with that with that. I mean that that scene doesn't play that differently, really, in terms of us finding him unctuous. But uh, this film is very satisfying. It isn't a great movie. And I, and I, and I would actually say, I, I really think Mike Nichols only made like three mm. great movies and stopped making them back in the mm. 70s. Like I think Carnal Knowledge was kind of the last one of his that I think was great. And he made a bunch of films that were good or not so good after that. But this is a good one. And as I said in the intro, I think that mix of elements, it opens up a lot of flaws in the film and contradictions in the film. But it also makes it kind of lively and in, in, in Scott, you are aware he directed a film called it. What Planet Are You From, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. Maybe maybe that one will, maybe on a second viewing, right? But yeah, there is, of course, that old-fashioned fairy tale quality, but the film is trying to address, you know, issues that are happening, were happening at the time in, the, in that workplace. And it is very re much reflective of, the period, as Tasha said, in films, the the one film it reminded me so much of from that period that I saw a million times was uh, The Secret of My Success <laughs> with Michael J. Fox. Do you remember that? Because mm. it was it's basically the same deal in the sense that it's about a character who's starting at the bottom and it gets to the top by being an imposter, you know, and proving that he's got a lot more, you know, business savvy than uh, people give him credit for. I mean, they're really, the plots are very similar in that respect. Scott, where do you stand on Mike Nichols' uh, 2004 movie, Closer? I like it. I, I like it. That's one well, of the ones that's We've definitely made more than three that you think are good now. So. Yeah. No, no, good. Oh, I great, said, I'm great, talking great, about great, okay. though. Like, great Mike Nichols films are, uh, the three great ones are Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, and... Uh, and yeah, but Carnival I said, there's a lot of... Good movies in his filmography. 
beyond that. Yes, also, also I just realized good. now now Nichols has joined the storied ranks of the next picture show, Three Pete Directors Club. Wait, <laughs> what was the third one? We did we, we did Virginia Wolf and Graduate. Oh, we did the Graduate. That's right. Oh, how yeah. about that? And now we've got to do Closer. Yeah, Tasha, I remember you really liking Closer. I think Closer is just such an underrated movie, and I'm not sure why. Because again, it's got a lot of really famous people, uh, but also just doing i think really excellent roles uh, i was just curious but yeah and obviously if you're talking about the difference between really strong movies and like masterpieces because if you look at something like the graduate like you're not going to put that a quarter star above closer like, you're, you're talking about the difference between the unimpeachable masterpieces he's made versus the merely really enjoyable movies and i feel like there's a difference too in terms of craft i mean in terms of his it, it level of engagement i mean i think there's a very deliberate attempt here it is and i'm not even slighting it really to make a film that is going to play in a big way with a mainstream audience i mean this is so directed toward that in a way that those other films are not i mean carnal knowledge is extremely (laughs) off-putting you know who's afraid of virginia wolf is a all the adaptation in black and white and the graduate is what the is doing what the graduate does um, uh, here's his attempt to, to play it right down the middle and I think he, and to also kind of work in the tradition of you know kind of older Hollywood films like Born Yesterday and um, he does it well I mean the I think also you kind of drawing on his theater experience too I mean it's very much sort of an actress film it's not, it's not like a swinging door farce or anything but it, it does have that kind of theatrical construction to it so much driven by dialogue and misunderstanding and those are the kind of self-contained situations play out like the Kevin Spacey scene it's kind of this self-contained moment you know I, I think there's there's a little bit of that as well. The wedding where they go the and wedding make scene, it happen yeah. together. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, the bride coming in in 350 pounds of tool mm. and uh, crying about how her, I think her new husband thinks that the reception looks like Nicaragua is the yeah, one. Is, yeah. There's just so many good details in this movie. And I think that's maybe why it's stuck with me. So like the, the details are what stick with me over time. Like the, I mean, obviously there's so many just hair and costuming moments that are memorable, but mm. um, the giant pink glass or the Jamaican flag color eyeshadow Jim Cusack's wearing at one yeah. point. Hmm. But but also just like sort of the specificity of this world sort of translated for audiences that are not in that world. Like this movie is where I learned the word and pretty much the extent of my knowledge of arbitrage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I still don't really understand what it is, but... It's a movie with that title you <laughs> That's can watch. True. That's true. With Richard Gere. <laughs> I, could, I could do that, but I don't think I will be doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly it's a hard-hitting world where uh, executives spend a lot of time doing coke and hanging out in swanky <laughs> hotel suites. But to go back to what uh, Scott was talking about with this reminding him of the secret of my success, uh, the movie I kept thinking about on this watch uh, was Devil Wears Prada, um, Mm -hmm. which obviously came out much later, but it is a example of the sort of relationship that I think probably sticks out in Working Girl as maybe its biggest hurdle as a feminist story, which is the relationship between uh, Tess and Catherine. And again, in the context of this, you know, twist on a Cinderella story, Catherine is a would-be fairy godmother who turns out to be the evil stepmother figure. And again, it works really well within the story the movie is telling. 
but it sets up the context where there is only room for one woman to succeed in in, in a man's world and that she has to, you know, undercut uh, another woman in order to do it. If I can defend that, though, I think part of the film is kind of getting about getting beyond that. I feel like Catherine has someone who's kind of in, inter- internalized the way the rules that men play by and sure. it sort of ends with that scene with, with Tess and her secretary and setting up a different dynamic, a different kind of, uh, you know, less depending on the old male way of doing things, kind of din- power dynamic between the two of them. I, you know, I, of course, you know, supporting Weaver's character is uh, in some ways a, a horrible st- stereotype, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I think it is kind of about getting past that in some ways. It's also just really key that she's a woman because if she wasn't, this would be a, yet another Battle of the Sexes movie. I mean, it really would be nine to five redux. And it just seems like a big important part of this story is that it's not really about getting around a man. It's not there is a bad man and he must be defeated. It's about there's a a lot of flaws in the system. And yeah, men are propping up the system. I love the fact that the movie never comments on the fact that she keeps walking into rooms where she's the only woman. And it similarly doesn't overtly comment on the fact that when she walks into Catherine's office, every single employee there is female. It suggests an an entire mindset. It suggests an idea that maybe she doesn't want to have men working under her because it's awkward. Maybe they don't look up to her in the right way, or maybe they're difficult. Maybe she feels that she can keep women under her thumb more easily, or maybe she's trying to give them all a boost, just not a boost above her, not a boost up to her level or, or too high. Genevieve was talking about like that specificity of design. One of the things I love about the movie is that when Tess first walks into that office and sees like 25 women working in a space, every single one of them looks different. They have different details of dress and design. They, they're physically different from each other. They, they're very different in their hair, even remaining within the milieu. And there's a sense of individualism there uh, that doesn't necessarily come across when you just like look at Tess and Sin, her friend played by Joan Cusack, side by side. <laughs> there's a sense that there's a much bigger story going on here and that we don't know all of it. And I find that kind of challenging and exciting. But kind of to top it all off, there's the importance of all of these different gender dynamics don't come down to a man fighting a woman for power, which is a story that we've seen a lot in a lot of different ways. And this is a, a different kind of story. At the same time, though, it's a male, male-dominated, male-created system that she's fighting against. Right. And Catherine is a woman who plays to that system while Tess is a woman who is sort of rebelling against it. Like she has that great line at the end where she says, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life working my ass off and getting nowhere just because I followed rules that I had nothing to do with setting up. And sort of Tess's whole arc is pushing against and breaking these rules and in the process sort of undercutting Catherine, who a woman who has been playing by those rules. Like in the early going, we get several moments of her kind of you know, playing the boys club game, you know, she dresses attractively, and she sort of brushes off their advances without fully brushing them off and and using their advances to her advantage in business. And, you know, she kind of gives Tess advice to that effect. So it, it just sort of sets up a tension between the way that they operate within a man's world. And, in doing so, it places them in conflict with each other. And I'm not saying that's a 
bad thing, but I'm saying that it is, I think, something that you just need to wrestle with in terms of what this movie is doing with female empowerment. At the same time, I think it's really key. Like you described Catherine as playing within the boys club mentality. I don't think that's true. I think that scene at the the cocktail party really clearly shows that even as a woman with her own staff, like a woman who's achieved enough power to have a closet full of $6,000 dresses, she's still subject to the same kind of like clumsy ex- you can't even call it flirting. The clumsy come on of a a man who is in a lot of ways drawn as unappealing and literally beneath her. Sigourney Weaver is a very tall woman. Uh, The man coming on to her and like putting a clumsy hand on her at the party is a short kind of geeky looking dude who just he thinks he has a right to her because she's a woman in this setting and she defangs the advance you know she doesn't emasculate him uh she puts it aside gently and then like reminds Tess that you've gotta never really say no because you don't know what kind of future you're cutting off by uh saying no to somebody or making an enemy out of somebody but i don't see her as playing the the boys club game i see her as like having a very politically adept way of navigating it and tess doesn't have any of that uh, kind of adept way like her whole presence at the cocktail party pushing around a steam tray and just being coated (laughs) sweat it's such a great simple image but it comes down to like this is the difference between them one of them is immaculately put together and at this point very practiced at dealing with the corporate world and the other one is literally a sweaty schlubby mess who hasn't gotten herself together yet and will by the end of the film but that gives her some place to go that's up I do think that you're right about the distinctions between them being important, just like how they approach these things. And it all comes down to the the ending where, like in the ending scene, Catherine is all dolled up and, and ready for battle and ready for business. And uh, Tess is literally wearing jeans and uh, kind of a, a frumpy shirt, but still has the advantage because of her intellect. So I think that we're seeing different ways of navigating being a woman in business, but I, I just, I don't think that Catherine fits into the man's world, like, particularly better than Tess does. She's just learned to navigate how poorly she fits into it by manipulating people, by using her sexuality, by using her charisma, and by stealing things, openly, blatantly stealing things. And by using her privilege. Like, I mean, there's lots of hints throughout the movie that she is someone who comes from wealth. Like, she went to Wharton, I think it is. Um, She's staying at her parents' house, I believe. uh, Yeah. Because she moved down from Boston. but, But mom and dad's place is open for her. Yeah. Uh, just a, a real quick sidebar, because Tasha, you you mentioned that final scene and the the differences in in Catherine and Tess's look. Uh, I just want to uh, give a shout out to Sigourney Weaver's amazing crutch acting in that in that uh, <laughs> uh, in, in that boardroom scene. The way she like points with the crutch, it's very very impressive. Oh, um, I I don't mean the confrontation <laughs> scene. I mean, well, there also is a confrontation yeah. scene. The scene but... where she's boxed, oh, that's right. uh, boxing up her stuff and walking out of the office. Right, the, right? the elevator. Where where they're holding up an elevator of twenty people and then they let it go and then get into a completely empty elevator. <laughs> Next, <laughs> um, a second shout out: uh, the uh, person coming on to Sigourney Weaver is played by Zach Grenier, who kind of played a variation on that yeah. same character now on on the Good Fight and before that oh, on the Good Wife yeah. and Devs. He says an amazing, some amazing oh, stuff in Devs. I haven't watched um, that yet. Yeah. So um, one thing I would say though that kind of occurred to me is uh, you know we think about the relationship between um, Catherine and 
Tess being sort of a mentor or protege thing or set up as such. Tess making the decision that she does to deceive is still her being the protege right i mean like she's still mm, she is understanding she, she, yeah i mean she's getting she's understanding that she has been deceived in order for that Catherine has deceived her in order to get ahead and she's kind of returning the favor she's like oh okay so the way you move ahead is not by playing <laughs> by the rules and and waiting your turn let's do it like my boss is doing it and cheat to win that said it's not like tess was playing by the rules i mean keep in mind how she got fired following the kevin spacing and arbitrage incident you know uh, (laughs) she like types on the ticker that her boss like has a small penis or something i can't even remember the the specifics yeah that's Um, a good one yeah so i mean like she she also calls him a pimp yeah that's following his uh (laughs) his assertion that he does not look like a pimp uh (laughs) he's he's played by oliver platt who admittedly has a uh, mildly pimpish quality a lot of the time but yeah she she's directly contradicting him by saying that he's a, a dorky pimp with a small penis <laughs> yeah so I mean, and apparently locking him out of the system such that he can't change the, the the words streaming over the ticker i don't think she does get fired though she very clearly is quitting uh, in a yeah, very yeah. dramatic style yeah. i don't think she expects to stay through like <laughs> the end of the day or uh, give the two weeks notice there i think that's a that's a that's kind of a tough to stick around after that moment so um, how is, is does she go to an employment agency after that is olympia dukakis's character uh, an employment oh, yeah. a- working an employment agency or, or like if no. almost felt like she was an hr in the same um, it's a temp agency isn't it i took it to be a placement service okay okay, okay. oh see i took it to be part of the same company and she has just yeah, I was been, unclear on that yeah I, I think she's just been sort of shuttled around uh in this giant corporation you know symbolized by these massive skyscrapers that everyone's in uh you know she's just been shuttled from one department to the next as a secretary jumping back a little bit to the power dynamics between Catherine and tess i would also just really like to shout out both the their intro sequence where Catherine is is warm and welcoming and friendly and also says go get us both coffees like just as a a a lead-in power move it's such a perfect declaration she is playing the part of a character who like we're we're all equals and we're all going to get along here but just so you remember you're a secretary and you work for me and when we go from that to <laughs> to Tess literally kneeling at her feet to help her with her ski boots. Mm. There is a degree to which an assistant helping you try on your new ski boots is a reasonable thing to do. Like those things are clunky and difficult to reach, especially uh, given how they're they're slanted. Like it's it's very hard to like walk around normally in <laughs> ski boots. Yep. It's a pain in the ass to get them on. So it seems like a reasonable thing. But the visual is repeatedly Tess kneeling at Catherine's feet. And even when she manages to to sort of get up and get away and have a normal conversation, she's forced to come back and help her get them off, which means kneeling at her feet again. And she's so aware of it. And again, the movie doesn't spell it out, but both the angles and just the expression on Tessa's face throughout all of that make it so clear that she knows she's being demeaned. Uh, even if Catherine is is very casually playing it off as though that's not the case and treating her like she's leveling with her, uh, you know, just gossiping with her about this man in her life and all of the things she's excited about. She's still basically in a, a feudal position kneeling to her lord. And it's almost as uncomfortable as the car scene with Kevin Spacey. You mentioned their first scene with the uh, Catherine telling her to go get coffee for both of them. The detail in that interaction that sticks out to me is... 
Tess addressing her as Catherine, and then a few sentences later, Catherine saying, and you can call me Catherine. You, like, don't call me oh, Miss, right. Miss whatever, call me Catherine. I, I thought she called her Captain, because she just said, you know, <laughs> something about we're all on this, on this ship together. And I thought she said, you know, all right, Captain. And it was meant mm. as like a little joke, like a little sort of like warm touch between them. And I was like, oh, she's going to call her Captain as a nickname. That's <laughs> both cute and just like speaking to like the leadership she expects out of this woman. And then when two sentences later, she says, call me Catherine, I kind of took it as a an undercutting of that oh attempt at a touch of familiarity interesting i mean i'd have to go back i've always heard it it's her saying catherine but you could be right i'll have to check the subtitles yeah because the the way that i interpreted that moment is again tess just slightly overstepping you know as she is wants to do as we've seen uh, as has been previously established and Catherine sort of very slyly responding in such a way that reinforces, you know, her her role as the boss and the mm-hmm. one who gets to declare what Tess calls her. But either way, it's an interesting interaction. I mean, all you know that I think we keep coming back to these small little moments because the movies I think greatest success is those you know so many character beats packed into every interaction, and that's what's what makes it really enjoyable. I think it's funny. I. I just I think of this as a film that's really well written in the power dynamics and really clumsy in some of the broader strokes of what makes it a Hollywood uh, rom-com, basically a Hollywood drom-com, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> like the the whole romance thing, I, I feel is pretty clumsily done in its attempts to be charming and yet it's kind of sleaziness at the same time. A lot of that stuff really didn't land for me. And at the same time, like that, it's the script is just so smart about like the little microaggressions of uh, operating in a corporate culture. Yeah, I feel like Harrison Ford kind of pushes the limits of what he can get away with just by being Harrison Ford because the Mm -hmm. character, because he is like, you know, the, the, the cockiness can be charming up to a point and it kind of tips over into what you you know what you call sleaziness and and it's really right on the border here i mean he becomes you know he's sort of like made her docile house husband by the end of the movie uh but at the same time i think i think there's a little bit of a taming of that character but it is it is so much like that that first scene where they meet and and he's so kind of uh controlling the situation or attempting to control the situation you kind of question whether what is charming about this character he's predatory he comes across Mm -hmm. as a pickup artist yes yeah like he walks in he doesn't want her to know who he is he wants lots of tequila really quickly straight (laughs) to uh, he's he keeps talking about in terms of like things he promised himself and er, like everything he said i was like okay you promised yourself you were going to drink tequila with some somebody i didn't promise myself that so i am not obligated by whatever dumbass promises you decided to make like just every move that he makes is out of the pickup artist manual except uh like he's not pushing his hands on her right away and it just comes across gross and then his look of like just like pure excited pleasure when he sees her passed out in the taxi i I was like is this movie going a very Mm. different direction than i expected and it, it feels like it's all meant to set up like you you're going to assume that they had sex and like like according to the mores of the time it wouldn't have been seen as rape it might have been seen as pushy but like by today's standards it's like she is literally unconscious and you're try literally trying to force more alcohol on her like you're talking to her like she's there and she's not and then she wakes up 
undressed in his bed and it's supposed to like play <laughs> off as a, next door oh, too. <laughs> he's so charming he's such a gentleman he didn't even take advantage of her unconscious body and he was undressing her and sticking her in his bed next to him well, I, he, he might have peeped ridiculous <laughs> well and the movie gives us like a few scenes before it confirms that he did not have sex with her i don't even want to say take advantage of her because he arguably already did that but you know like there's a couple scenes where she believes that they had sex, you know, and I think we, well, I'll ask you, Tasha, since it was your first time, did you? Uh, <laughs> Unfortunate phrasing. Yeah, right. Um, did, like, did you, when she wakes up in his bed in her underwear, did you take that as, oh, they just slept next to each other? Or did you assume that he had uh, no, pushed no, her, I, I guess? I did not, I did not actually think for a second that uh, this movie was going to play Harrison Ford off as uh, a man who gets a woman drunk and rapes her. <laughs> like, the fact that she wakes up in that ridiculously elaborate lingerie set, like, I, you know, he, he might have taken off all of her underwear and had sex with her and then somehow poured her back into the, like, the panties and bra, but there's no way he, she was getting that garter set back on her. <laughs> so, no, I, I did not think for a moment that that was true. I did roll my eyes because I, I know the movie was trying to suggest it so it could it could take it back in a ha ha they didn't actually he's not a scumbag kind of way mm-hmm. and it still seemed very clumsy it's lo- like- lo- uh, that happened in the 80s all the time people love that stuff <laughs> I'm 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 going back to our lengthy conversation about the sex scene in Big and exactly what level of creepy we should same year eighty eight. Um, so though I would say that when this film is in the sort of the business arena with Jack and Tess, he's completely on board with her and, and respects what she's doing. Under you know, I mean, this mm-hmm. is a huge important deal for him too, and something that he needs to happen for his reputation and his career. And even when Catherine reappears, I mean, there is a faith in in what she has accomplished. Like she, her gamble on herself and her instincts and her ability to work a deal like this is completely justified in his eyes. Yeah, there's actually a real charm in the low fineness of the scene where they're just working together in his house with like a huge pile of of papers and the computer, and they're just talking. Uh, very like cut and dried business terms at each other. There's a sense of equality and uh, like comfort there that the whole rest of the movie with like all of its power jousting and big declarations about what a woman can do in the workplace, like doesn't really touch. There's, there's nothing really more romantic in this film as far as I'm concerned than just that sense of them like working quietly together as intellectual equals. Wait, is that more romantic than Alec Baldwin's proposal? how how much of a a 1980s fantasy is it to have a woman having to choose having the difficult choice between alec baldwin and uh, harrison ford as a romantic part alec baldwin's really good in this is kind of in the same zone he's in it in married to the mob where it's just sort of this east coast sleaziness that comes off that that, with with no reflection no reflectiveness whatsoever uh he does it so well same year too again 88 yeah good year I wanted to talk about uh, some of the performances. I mean, first of all, I think we should talk about what Melanie Griffith brings to the table here. What, what did you make of her casting and performance? Because it's one of those movies where it's like, yeah, the, who's got, who else is going to play that role, right? I mean, it's like one, it, she plays it so perfectly. 
at mean, the same time, you're, you're, as you pointed out, he's, she's kind of playing against the type of character she played before, where, where she's not this aggressive person, at least not initially. Yeah, it, like it's interesting to hear you talking about her playing against type because this has always been my primary source for Melanie Griffith. You know, like this is the first thing I've I've ever seen her in, and it's the first thing I will always associate her with. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always there has but there is a kind of a passive. Well, it's certainly not. I guess in something wild, there's not a passive quality at all to her. She's she is completely the person who is taking charge of everything and kind of setting this Jeff Daniels character on a ride. But there is a a, a compliance or a, a passivity, a sexual passivity to her that is kind of played up. And it, it, this film sort of toys with a little bit, I think, it, it, just to kind of make us underestimate her and make us uh, if, in the same way that the characters do if that makes any sense i'm going to take you on a little journey a little <laughs> journey of memory uh to the year 1994 when the movie milk money starring <laughs> melanie griffith uh, came out okay i was in college um i was starting my movie reviewing career and a reporter from the chicago tribune came in to kind of critique everybody's work and he read some of my film reviews and he told me that I had talent, that I might have a future. And I was exploding with pride. And then he waved my Milk Money review at me and said, but I just I can't see how you could review something with Melanie Griffith in it and not bring up the fact that she's got this high pitched little fakey girly voice and it's impossible to take her seriously mm. in anything. Mm. <laughs> and I I bristled like unto a Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. Uh, I was so annoyed at this uh, dude that I did not know. And his dismissiveness of her, uh, based on how her voice sounds. And at the same time, watching this movie, I kept thinking about that. Because especially in the early going, like I know that we're establishing kind of a low ground so we can work our way up to her definitive confidence and how all this entire experience has changed her. But fairly early on, when she's making some of those early pitches, particularly the one that she makes to Catherine for why Trask should buy a radio station in the first place, she just comes across as so diminutive and soft and not not confident, but not competent. Uh, her she she just she doesn't make a good argument for the the buy. She doesn't make a good argument for being able to stand up for her own work or bring it across in any way. And it was one of my bigger problems with the film. I, I feel like at times Melanie Griffith has kind of come across as a, a latter day Marilyn Monroe you know, about the look of her body and about the the breathy little girl voice and what it does to men and whether she can play toward or against that stereotype uh, makes a big difference in the story. But here there were times that I was just like, I, like deepen your voice a little bit and make eye contact. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not that hard. Yeah. Well, the, the, the knock on her voice comes up a lot. I was kind of like going through, you know, her, her career a little bit in, in preparation for this. And, and it really is came up in review after review, the, the voice thing. And it's like, you know, it's, it's how she talks. It's kind of part and parcel with the character. I was thinking also that what? I mean, men she's policing women's voices. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> wait, wait, let me, let me say that with a little more vocal fry. <laughs> sorry um, what what are you talking I, about i also wonder um you know she's only for best actress here so it's a pretty you know pretty big deal 
And two years later, she's in Bonfire of the Vanities. And I, I feel like maybe she played the, paid the price for that more than her male co-stars. I mean, it's Bruce Willis and Tom Hanks had some successful films after that. And Thank she did as say. well. I, I mean, she had, you know, it wasn't like a total downward trajectory after that. And some of the films that she did appear in perhaps weren't, weren't so great. But I wonder if the options kind of closed off for her in part because of that movie. You also just have to keep in mind that this was an age in which uh, women's stardom generally did not last long you know mm. it, you, people were considered you're the ingenue and then maybe you're the like the tough up-and-comer and then maybe you graduate to one of the few mom roles but that's really about it so it's it's entirely possible that she just aged out of an industry that considers people aged out generally by 22 yeah i think that's a pretty plausible thought uh tasha about what happened with melanie griffith it's also, you know, it's just like more recently she's kind of come back with a few roles and it, it feels like that's part of the shift in the industry is like this looking back on people who had talent and, and created like memorable slots for themselves in the world has suddenly like the nostalgia factor in any form of entertainment now outweighs the value of the new and the the value of uh, women being eternally young on film. It kind of feels like she's had like maybe about as much of a minor career renaissance as she necessarily wanted, but we have started seeing her uh, crop up in a few things again, seemingly maybe just for fun. But her work in this film, <laughs> quite yeah. strong, I think. Right, uh, Genevieve? Yeah, I, I mean, to uh, bring it back to the subject of her voice in the context of Tess, this movie does have that. I, I feel like this movie acknowledges it a little bit in that scene of her practicing speaking like Catherine, you know, and we do have a detail early on that she's taking elocution lessons, but it doesn't seem that she really finds her voice, as it were, until she starts imitating the, her, again, would-be mentor. So, you know, there's a dynamic at play where she is finding herself in the process of putting on the a role of another woman, you know, but it does end up working. And part of that is the sequence where she poses as her own secretary by putting on, I think it's a Brooklyn accent. Oh, yeah. Uh, just like momentarily uh, jumping, like very audibly jumping back and forth in age and class just by changing her voice. It's a very small little detail, but it's a pretty neat one. And you have Joan Cusack floating around kind of providing like the baseline <laughs> of, of what Tessa's actual <laughs> accent and voice is like. <laughs> oh, man, as uh, as Tess becomes more sophisticated in her look, it seems like Joan, Joan Cusack's hair just keeps getting bigger to compensate. <laughs> oh, and the eye makeup, too. I love everything <laughs> about Joan Cusack in this movie, guys. I do, too. <laughs> it, it is... It is it is really like there is not a moment uh, that Joan Cusack uh, has this film that isn't wonderful. I mean, it's such, and she was an Oscar nominee for it, I believe. And mm -hmm. she was and, all, all and, three of them. And it's, but she, it's a very small part uh, for Joan Cusack, and it's not necessarily calling on her to show that some great range of Oscar emotion. It's just that she just nails every line reading, every single one. Is tea, just, me. Yeah. She's also yeah. just such an important role here because it could so easily uh, have fallen into the dynamic of there's only enough room for one woman in this industry. So as a contrast between Tess and Catherine's rivalry, we have Tess and Sin's friendship and kind of the the selflessness of Sin's friendship might be a little much. Uh, it might put her into the category of gay bestie or magical black person, like these minor characters who only exist to be like completely supportive, no life having like 
specters who just boost the main character but we actually get to see a little bit of sin like she has she has a boyfriend she gets married like she has her own friends she has her own social life she's she also not own... always right either she's trying to get her, oh, back, yeah. her yeah. back together with i was Nick. just gonna say speaking of uh supporting her friend <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of that character it's a very small character it's a very small role but it seems like it gets a lot of oomph out of like the the lines that she does have that's why you hired joan of... Suck, you know <laughs> but i'm not just talking about performance i'm talking about mm. um efficiency in terms of establishing her as somebody with her own life and her own agenda in addition to being a booster and establishing her as somebody who's internalized some terrible messages and and is passing them along and maybe in the end that's why she doesn't like climb the ladder in the same way is she's the one holding herself back with these attitudes one thing this has in common with uh, another Mike Nichols movie is the song and score by Carly Simon, which recalls how he used Simon and Garfunkel in The Graduate. Uh, how, how does this play for you by comparison? I mean, I've been listening to Let the River Run every morning since I watched this <laughs> this film like four <laughs> days ago. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just going to have Lady in Red stuck in my head for <laughs> oh, possibly right. another week. I, I think the score is really good. I, I, I generally like Carly Simon. I'm sorry, Jenny, I really don't like the song Let the River Run. I, I feel <laughs> It's just so bombastic, and then the it's okay. Some the people choir. have taste, and some people don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the choir and the lines about New Jerusalem—it's like this is really maybe too grandiose. I mean, not not to any way downplay the importance of the drama here, but uh, the the story of Tess McGill, but it's like slightly too grandiose for for the material. I mean, Am I, I, wrong? I I love it in the context of that opening scene, which I love the way this movie opens with Tess's commute in, into Manhattan, mm-hmm. and that you know the, the the Statue of Liberty, like rather than opening with your New York skyline shot and all its phallic uh, skyscrapers, you get <laughs> Lady Liberty first, you know? And, and, and I said I've been listening to this song every day since I've specifically been listening to it every morning when I wake up and I'm getting ready for work. Like, I think it just, it has in the context, like it's a sort of a, a place setting song. It works really well for me. Um, and as far as the the rest of the score, you know, there's a lot of motifs running throughout that pull from that song. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of threaded throughout the movie in, in different ways. But I mean, yeah, I really like it. I'm not I'm not gonna say anything bad about Carly Simon or Let the he, River he did, Run. I'll, I'll let uh, Keith do that. <laughs> he did that with Simon and Garfunkel too, right? I mean with the with the the score part where it's like right? And it actually reminded me of um Gilmore Girls and Carol King's uh opening oh, and score for that where it's just like constant like la la la's that like call back to the the opening uh the theme song melody. Sam Phillips does the vocals on the show. Yeah, but it's still pulling from the carol king song like you know simon and garfunkel was one of my first fandoms i just i love them so much and they bring so much to the graduate in terms of of setting the tone of melancholy and distance and loneliness that's just fundamentally the core of that movie and like here the the oversized like like kind of bombastic elements may be appropriate to the film but they're just they're not going to touch me in the same place you know it just it doesn't feel personal in the same way and i don't just mean personal because of my personal fandom i mean simon and garfunkel's music 
kind of reaches towards a a lot of very personal internal specific emotions that you feel alone whereas like this bombastic kind of score feels like something you experience like at the gym uh there's, <laughs> there's a lot of of exercise motifs in this film in terms of the walking on the street or the uh the exercise bike like that kind of thing and, and this movie feels like an aerobics class in some ways oh, God, because that of that exercise score. bike i remember my mom had one of those where you're like biking <laughs> and also like humping the machine at the same time <laughs> can't believe they, they don't make those anymore <laughs> well it, it is a little bit hard for carly simon and for this film to work up to what was one of the most famous and groundbreaking soundtracks of all time <laughs> it's, it's hard for a single carly simon song to quite get there but she makes the effort i'm just though i th- also think it should be let the river flow rather than run it seems very, very counterintuitive um, take that 1988 carly yeah, simon i know it's a tough it's a it's a it's a, it's a carly burn um, the oscar are, back <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to make. I'm not going to demand <laughs> that. Um, so, uh, so we'll we'll get into. Uh, well, probably not more Carly Simon, but more Working Girl <laughs> next week when we uh, talk about the assistant. But now it's time for feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First up, a listener takes some of us, uh, like uh, me, for example, uh, to task for feeling sympathy for Frank Ticone, the school funds embezzler in bad education. Keith, want to take this one? Sure. I'll try to bring the proper chiding tone to it. Uh, Hussein writes, uh, to play devil's advocate for a character that steals over $2 million individually and over $11 million collectively of taxpayer money in Long Island, an extremely segregated part of New York with wildly unequal education opportunities, is an extreme case of protagonist bias. If their tax district has so much extra money, maybe they can give it to part of Long Island that isn't number four in Ivy admissions. Jackman is great in this, but there's no sympathy for a white-collar criminal that still makes 170000 a year through a pension loophole. Really wish you would have discussed that little postscript doozy. At the end of the day, he won. He paid no real price for his crime. It's only a slight stretch to say this is like feeling bad for Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I think he's got a point. I think he's got a point here. I, I think, but I think part of the film is that that it lets us be charmed by him to the point where it only kind of dawns on us later how awful what he's done is. And, and we did not discuss that loophole thing, which is amazing uh, <laughs> to still be paid that much for uh, after all those crimes. Um, so, yeah, but no, I, th- I think Hussein makes some, some pretty good points here. What about everybody else? Yeah, okay. <laughs> these, are, these are fine points. And he's right. I mean, it is protagonist bias uh, in that we follow him down this slippery slope, but we can imagine a time in which he was a good educator and a dedicated educator. We can not only imagine it, we can watch him being one mm-hmm. and being someone who who ultimately, in the context of this film, uh, you know, helps along the case against himself, what will become the case against himself. But the other thing, the Jordan Belfort thing really is interesting to me with the Wolf of Wall Street because I don't think the Wolf of Wall Street is necessarily a condemnation of Jordan Belfort, though Jordan Belfort is not a, not someone that that film loves in any respect. Um, but I think that... I really? think the, 
Really, Tasha. though? Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, really, though? I'm, I'm, I'm you guys, right, I'm putting my foot down. We're not going to relitigate Wolf of Wall Street. Well, well, Wall Street, but I'm also just not going to let that go by completely unchallenged. Okay, so so, but what I'm saying is that is that I don't think... The Wolf of Wall Street is not about Jordan Belfort. The but Wolf of Wall Street is about how the system punishes one type of person and not the other. That, that the Wolf of Wall Street... It, the point of Wolf of Wall Street is that legitimate Wall Street is what teaches this character to rip people off. That is the goal of Wall Street, to rip people off. And in one context, that's okay, and that's a respectable way of making a living. In the other case of a guy running a boiler room on Long Island, it's 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 look upon more dimly, and that has to do with certain class issues and certain inequities of the system. And I think bad education is keenly aware of the context in which these crimes are, are committed and, and the types of people who... It's aware of a bad education is aware of the full system at work. And Frank Tacconi is kind of a part of that system. And so I think that context is there. I mean, and that explains to some extent, you know, the sympathy or at least the understanding that we have of this character working within that context. Yeah, I think there's like a fuzzy line here between sympathizing with the character and understanding them. And I think the idea that you must or can't help but sympathize with a protagonist by virtue of understanding them is like really limiting in terms of like how you can like watch a movie like I I mean I I love movies with difficult protagonists who aren't purely good or likable see Tracy Flick. <laughs> I, I didn't really get to weigh in. Uh-huh. Uh, no one uh, uh, wrote in about elections, so I'm not able oh, to. Oh, look, I just found this letter. <laughs> yeah, it's from Jen E. Vive. <laughs> it's she says, writes, hey, Genevieve, what do you think of Tracy Flick? Yeah. Well, but, well I, and I'll just say what I was preparing to say if someone did, which is like everything you guys talked about in the episode on election is why I like Tracy Flick. Like, I don't idolize her. She's not someone I want to be, but I think she's an amazing character. And I don't think, you know, understanding why a character is flawed means that you are sympathizing with them or or rooting for them to succeed. And I I don't think that's the case with Takone either. I think, like Scott said, it's more about understanding the system around him that allowed him to do this and understanding kind of the full scope of the person who has been moving through that system and how they've been doing it. But I don't think that's the same as feeling bad for them for getting what they deserve or celebrating, you know, when they get one over on the, on the little guy. I think that's limiting. I will also say, I don't think acknowledging that, that Frank is played by Hugh Jackman is charming or acknowledging that he's a good educator or that he knows how to manipulate the system and manipulate people. I don't think any of that necessarily means sympathizing with him. I think those are all statements of fact. And I think when we talk about how charming he is, that is not to say, and therefore he should be allowed to get away with these things, or therefore I felt bad when he didn't get away with these things. For me, a a lot of the enjoyment of bad education was knowing fairly early that he was going to get caught and just watching the games that he played as people came for him. Every single time a new confrontation happened, I was riveted with, okay, how is he going to try to wriggle out of this one? Like, what method is he going to bring to bear? And 
I think saying that he's a charming man doesn't mean that I wanted him to get away with it or felt he deserved to get away with it. I do think we probably should have discussed that postscript, but in the end, I'm not sure how much there is to say about it, apart from just kind of like groaning at the the ridiculousness of reality. Uh, In fact, not only do I not know that it significantly changes the film, I think if it did significantly change the film, it wouldn't literally be in a text postscript after the film's over. So we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel and so they're incli- chastising of Scott <laughs> and they're chastising <laughs> and they're, of me and their encouragement of uh, Genevieve to talk about Tracy Flick. <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for that. That wow, that letter came really just in the middle of the show. It was incredible. Uh, if you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll answer the phones again for The Assistant, a much more serious look at the fraught life of an executive assistant. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so we'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, dress shabbily, they notice the dress. Dress impeccably, they notice the woman. Wear sweatpants on Zoom calls, they won't notice a thing. (laughs) 